Lord God, we are reminded that we are not infinite. We are reminded that human life on earth does not go on forever. And and there are those among us, most likely, who have suffered the loss of miscarriage. And so we also remember and know that the coming of life is not in our control. And so we ask that you would give us the grace to live faithfully in the days that we are given. We ask for our friends who are gathered in this place and those who are not with us, whose loved ones we just saw and remember tonight. We ask that your peace, your comfort, your presence would surround them. We ask, Lord, that even when we are faced with our limited humanity, when we walk through grief, when we remember lives that are well-lived and serve as exemplars, and, and when we remember lives that were cut too short or that ended sadly, we look to you, the author, the giver of life, the only one who can ever live a perfect, endless life. And we ask that you would share your life with us. We ask that you would give us grace to be faithful, that you would give us grace to live with gratitude, with reverence for the life that you have given us and the life that exists in others all around us. For those who are recently touched by death and who are in over their heads in grief today, Lord, we ask that they would know your presence and your peace. We ask that we could partner with you in their lives to bring joy, to help us all remember that there is something more powerful than death and to live together in the hope of resurrection. This is what we ask for. This is what we pray in confidence because we know that you are faithful and we know that you are good. So we pray this together in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. To turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 3, on this Trinity Sunday. And if you don't have a Bible, I have friends who have Bibles. They would love to lend you a Bible. If you do not own a Bible, you can just have this. This would be our gift to you. And if you are in first grade through fifth grade, uh, once a month we have a children's sermon. Pastor Hope is back there. And so if you're in first through fifth grade, we invite you to run downstairs, follow Pastor Hope, and that would be fabulous. If you need a Bible, just hold up your hand and somebody will bring you a Bible and you can just use it for the service or you can take it home if you'd like. But at our church, we stand as we honor the reading of God's Word and so I invite you to stand now, John chapter 3, starting with verse 1. 
So hear the word of the Lord for us on this Trinity Sunday. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus, how can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind, but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. How are these things possible, Nicodemus asked. Jesus replied, you are a respected Jewish Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things? I assure you, you, we, we tell you what we know and what we have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his Son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world. Through him. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say together, thanks be to God. You, you may be seated. So I'll admit it, the doctrine of the Trinity is a tough one to wrap your brain around. In the earliest days of the Christian movement, heresies were raging, and people were being swayed to believe all kinds of things. People were making life and death decisions about their lives, and they didn't want to die over the wrong things, so the church was committed to seeking and teaching the truth. Early Christians were forced to develop a language that described their experience with God, but yet at the same time, at the same time, they, they, needed, to, they needed to keep it in tune with what they saw in the scriptures and what they saw demonstrated in the person of Jesus. So after debate and struggle and argument and prayer, over a number of years, the church agreed together, and they settled on this idea that God is Trinity. God is Trinity. The one God expressed in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. It was expressed here in what we call the Athanasian Creed. It says, this is our faith, that we worship one God in Trinity, and in the Trinity, in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence, for the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit is still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. Their glory is equal. Their majesty co-eternal. Accordingly, there is one Father, not three fathers. There is one Son, not three sons. There is one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. Nothing in this trinity is before or after. Nothing is greater or smaller in their entirety. The three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. So in everything, as was said earlier, we must worship their trinity in their unity and their unity in their trinity. Anybody's mind blown yet? 
It's tempting. I'll tell you what. It is tempting for a preacher to do a bunch of college-level doctrinal work while he preaches to take everyone to theology class and try to, if anybody can actually do that, try to explain all the nuances of this doctrine. But what I like about the text... And what I, like about the tr- what, what I like about Trinity Sunday is, is that it allows, us, it allows us to see that the Trinity has left itself open for dialogue and discussion and even debate. And I'm not just talking about the doctrine is open. I mean, the Trinity, God, is open for this discussion. The way we talk about this God, the way we struggle with what is true about God, the way we manage our real lives against what we have seen in this God, how we grapple with putting our words, our, our words to our own personal experience with this God, how we finite beings put a language to an infinite being is always up for dialogue because the struggle of this life And the struggle with this mysterious God is real. Nicodemus felt it. Job, in the Old Testament, felt it. He said this, Do you think you can explain the mystery of God? Do you think you can diagram God Almighty? God is far higher than you can imagine, far deeper than you can comprehend, stretching farther than the earth's horizons, far wider than the endless ocean. And if there is one thing that I've learned about this God who is so mysterious, it is that this God always puts me on my heels. Just when I think I've got it down, just when I think I've got this God nailed down, just when I think I've got God figured out, that's about the time I find myself startled by what the Trinity does. Now, Nicodemus is one of those that thought he had God nailed down. He had this amazing resume. He was an expert in the law. He was a leader in Israel. He was a person of high standing with incredible authority. Nicodemus was a teacher of the things of God. He taught the master's level courses at the Jewish Ivy League University. He was a guest speaker on all the Jewish conference circuits. He wrote bestsellers like your best Jewish life yet. Purpose-driven Jewish life. Mere Judaism. These were his books. And yet, John says that he approached Jesus at night with some of his questions. Nicodemus confessed that he had seen the signs and the God-revealing activity that came in the mysterious work and the wonders of Jesus of Nazareth, but he was confused by them. He was put on his heels. He was intrigued, but he was bewildered. At one point, he even calls Jesus a teacher, which is a high level of respect, but he says no, and, and he says no one could do all the things all the God-pointing, God-revealing acts you do if, if God wasn't in on it. Now, we, reading this text, say, what? What's going on here? Some believe, some experts believe that Nicodemus came to Jesus in the dark or at night because he didn't want others in his tribe to see what he was doing. And, and actually, that might be the case. He might be a little bit ashamed 
After all, he has been the guy with all the answers, and now he's the one who's getting schooled. Jesus has created enough controversy in town that some think that Nicodemus came at night, so it was safe because he could then ask his honest questions. And he couldn't ask his honest questions when it was daytime, when it was light outside. But then there are these other experts, scholars, and and I happen to find myself in, in this camp. They believe that John describes the scene in this way for another reason. They think that the gospel writer John is doing this literary trick. They think that John says that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night or in the dark, not just to describe the setting, but because Nicodemus himself was in the dark about the things of God. And I will admit that sometimes... So am I. He's, he's in the dark. He's got questions. He doesn't get it. His mind has been blown. What made sense before for Nicodemus doesn't make sense now. So Jesus begins to invite him in, into the light. And if we would read the whole Gospel of John, we would learn this, that light is one of the major themes of John's Gospel. This is, Jesus is the light. The light has come into the world. The light gives life. But John also says, the light that bursts through the darkness has come, but the darkness can't understand it. And Nicodemus can't understand it. He's, he's in the dark. So this whole long 17-verse discussion unfolds, and Jesus begins trying to explain what's going on in every way that he can think of. He, thinks, he, he explains it with metaphors and word pictures and examples of what God is doing and how God is revealing God's self to the world. He uses phrases like this, you need to be born again or born from above or born of water in the Spirit or you need to be of heaven. And, Je- and Jesus says this, this born kind of thing happens in a mysterious way under the power of the wind. And the wind will blow where it will. And you can feel it, but you can't see it. And you certainly can't predict the wind. We know that all too well living here. Now, I've studied this passage a lot this week. And I've read this passage about a million times. And I've read books and articles on this passage. And I have come back with, um, what now, Jesus? I mean, it's just, I almost don't, I just don't get it. Uh, What are you talking about? That's exactly what Nicodemus does. So he begins to ask about these metaphors, and instead of getting better instruction, Jesus is, he's kind of like, hello, McFly, I thought you were a teacher of these most basic things, and you don't even know the basics. They're as plain as the hand before your face. Now, I will tell you that I'm kind of sympathetic towards Nicodemus here, because these 17 verses, this text is a blast. It's a flurry. It's a blitz of information and explanation. One scholar called it a kaleidoscope of symbols. Jesus is coming from all angles trying to give clarity to the situation, and he, he says it's all there right in front of Nicodemus. And he's kind of acting like a jerk. Jesus, in the text, is kind of being a jerk. 
I want to say to Jesus, Jesus, if you don't get it, you don't get it. If you're in the dark, you're in the dark. Doesn't Jesus know that patience is a virtue? Why give a hard time to a person for simply asking questions? One teacher I had in high school would say, there are no dumb questions in this class. And what he meant was, there are no dumb questions in this class. Don't you be asking a dumb question. That's kind of how I feel like Jesus is acting here. Explanations of these things that happen to be in John chapter 3 are like us trying to talk about the Trinity. It's a mind explosion. Maybe we're in the dark like Nicodemus. I've been thinking about this a lot. Because just when I just at the moment that I'm irritated with Jesus, some something dawned on me, and I begin to think, well. Well, maybe Jesus isn't just, maybe he's not being a jerk. Maybe, maybe Jesus isn't being a jerk. Maybe Jesus is trying to jerk Nicodemus and us out of the way we already think about God. It could be, it very well could be that while God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are open for dialogue, I'm not. Maybe hitting him with this whirlwind of images, this flurry, and in doing so, maybe Jesus is inviting Nicholas and Nicodemus, excuse me, and us into the light, into this new way of thinking about God, in, into ways of thinking about God that we've never thought about God before. So Caroline Lewis is this scholar from Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota. I read some of the stuff that she writes. She's really, really smart. She's spent her life studying and teaching theology, but she said in the most recent days, she's decided that she's not so much into trying to describe God anymore. She said she struggles with, she says she struggles with trying to use all these theological descriptions about God, making sure that she can put words to something that's so mysterious. It's like trying to take a picture of the wind, Instead, what she says she gives her life to now, she said she puts her efforts not in trying to describe God so much as to look for and describe that to which God is committed. Maybe Nicodemus doesn't get it. He just wants to receive God descriptions, but Jesus is trying to tell Nicodemus about those things that God is committed to. And by asking this question... What does the Trinity look like, or, or what does the Trinity look like it's committed to here? I, I think we might get some clarity about who and what the Trinity is. And I think the answer might be found in the last image, the last word picture, the last example that Jesus presents. He finally brings all of this down to the elementary level for Nicodemus, and he tells Nicodemus a story that his parents would have told him way, way back in the day when he was very young, out of Numbers 21. Now, I've got a picture of this. As the Hebrew children were wandering through the desert, they were caught in a spot filled with poisonous snakes. The rebellion had led them to this spot, so God commanded their leader, Moses, to make a snake out of bronze and lift it up onto a pole. And if the people were bitten by any poisonous snakes, all they had to do was look up at the pole and they would live. 
So a pole with a snake on the top has become a symbol of healing even today. I was driving down Route 66 down the road on Friday night, and I saw a symbol on the side of an ambulance. It was a pole with a snake wrapped around it. So Jesus continues with this Trinitarian description, and and he narrows in on that to which God has committed. He tells Nicodemus what God is committed to. He says, Nicodemus, the one, the one with God, the Son of Man who came down from the presence. There's your Trinitarian language right there. He's like the snake that Moses lifted up in the desert to provide salvation and healing for God's people. The one will be lifted up like a snake. Jesus will be lifted up on a pole, only this time, everyone, everyone, everyone who looks to him who is trusting and expectant will gain eternal life, life that is beyond comprehension. And those who experience it, it's like they've they've been born again. I think it could be that Jesus is using all these phrases and all these metaphors and and these images like born from above and born again and born of water and the Spirit to reveal first to the original readers and then to us that God is committed to a divine remaking of who we are and the way we think about God. You know, for Nicodemus, the most important thing in the world to him was his status. He was born into the right family. His ecological system formed his identity, his dad's vocation, his mother's guidance, his religion, his faith community, his t-ball coach, his preschool teacher at Hebrew school, his seventh grade Cub Scout leader, his next door neighbors, their social and their cultural values. They made up who Nicodemus was, but it wasn't just that. Also, his secret sins his inability to love his enemy, all the blackmailing and politicking that he did uh, as a Pharisee, all of these things, they shaped who he was and they shaped what he became. I was at a sixth grade graduation just a couple weeks ago and one boy said, I want to thank my teachers. They made me the man I am today. (laughs) This is how Nicodemus thinks. These, all these things, These were the things that made Nicodemus the man he was. And he couldn't imagine anything else. He was the sum of his yesterdays. And now he's this bundle of doubts, uncertainties, wishes, hopes, fears, habits. They've all been building up throughout the years. And he might be thinking, wouldn't it be wonderful to make a break from the past and forge a whole new beginning? But how could that happen? How could a person be rebirthed? Could that possibly be undone and redone? Well, according to Jesus in chapter 3, in this discussion, it, it seems so. Because the Trinity, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, the God of the cosmos, John says, the God of life and light, is not interested in condemning the world, but is interested and is committed to saving it. And this comes through yet this another symbol, love in the form of a cross. The one who will be lifted up and is 
all that God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the one who will be lifted up is committed, committed to the world that breaks his heart. The sun is lifted on the pole, and the sun is this connecting piece between the earthly and the heavenly, the mysterious and the plain to see, the brokenness of our world and our own lives, and the restoring love of God. It's the connecting piece between the darkness that we live in and the invitation to live into new light. John tells his readers, Father, Son, and Spirit are this great divine relationship. And as the Son is lifted up, it is seen that they, the Father, Son, and Spirit, the one, are one in purpose. And the purpose is this, to begin a new family where everyone is invited to rebirth everyone and to restore everything. This is what God, the Trinity, is committed to, and his commitment reveals who God is. Athanasius, who was born around 296 and died, oh, 75 years later or so, argued that God was a God that was involved. And this God is eminently transcendent. He's an eminently transcendent reality. He said that God surpasses the ordinary and was exceptional. But what made God exceptional, what made this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exceptional was this divine relationship. They were co-equal, co-creator, co-participants. The Trinity was committed to relationship. The Trinity was relationship. Together, Father, Son, Spirit, love the world, a world that is hostile towards God and God's people. And the Trinity acted to save the world, not to condemn it. One, one scholar said it, it, it took me a long time to realize that not, only, that not only did God not hate my enemies, he didn't even hate his enemies. This is what Nicodemus didn't get. This is why darkness, this is why he's in darkness. This is why he didn't, this is what he didn't understand. God, love, light, sacrifice, newness, life, relationship. When we find this, it's like we're being born again. It's who God is. It's it's what God does. It's what God expects the church to be and to be committed to as well. This Trinity, this is, this is crazy stuff. You know, without the Trinity, it is, it is fine to hold on to a private faith. It's okay to hold on to a racial bias. It, 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 without the Trinity, there's an excuse to incite violence. There's a justification for anti-Semitic or, or a homophobic statement. Without the Trinity, there's justification to cheat on your spouse, an excuse to leave your children if something better and more convenient comes along. Without the Trinity, it's okay for a church to be self-focused, committed to do the easy things, target only the fancy, uh, fancy and cater to those with money. 
The Trinity doesn't act the way I normally act. The Trinity doesn't think the way I think or behave like I behave or have the opinions that I have. The Trinity is an, unconvenient, is an inconvenient truth to those who are like Job and Nicodemus and me. The Trinity is committed because the Trinity is about relationship. The Trinity loves that who is those who are hostile to it. The Trinity is committed to the atheist that doesn't believe. The agnostic that barely does the Muslim down the street that everybody is afraid of, the gay couple that has been run run out of their faith community, and the faith community that rejected them. This commitment, this relationship is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. The most famous, the most famous verse of the Bible you know, but it could be translated like this, for God so loved the God-hating world that God put on display his audacious, unexpected, and even crazy love for that world. That, my friends, is good news. Amen and amen. Scholars tell us that the Trinity, this relational being, is a being of communion. And the meal that church people gather to eat every single week is a visual image of the triune God. Because you can't have a meal together without the relationship with people that meet you at that table. I want to invite you to the table of our Lord. And when you come to this table, I want you to know that you are enjoying the benefits of the outpouring love of this triune God. Father, Son, and Spirit. When you come to this table, you do not come alone. When you come to this table, you get to bring your real stuff just like Nicodemus got to bring his real stuff, and you get to meet with this real God. When you come to this table, I want you to know that this is the connector between heaven and earth. Anyone who is open to the good work of God in their life, anyone who is longing to be born again, anyone who needs newness, whose heart is available to the love of God that was demonstrated on the cross, whose life is open to the direction of God's Spirit, you, you are welcome to this table. And if that's not you, there's no need to come, but if that is you, maybe, and, and maybe now you're open for the very first time, I invite you to come to this table as a way of prayer. And when you, I want to invite you to invite this God to do this Trinitarian kind of work in your life. Allow this God to draw you close. Allow this God to make space so that you might hear from him and that you might receive his healing and his forgiveness but I invite you also to check your heart before you come and ask these questions. Is there, would there be anything that would prevent me from giving myself fully over to this God? And if so, I want to invite you to turn these things over to this God now, trusting that through his Son, who has the power to forgive and set things right, that you will be set right. And I want to remind you that at dinner on the night before Jesus was betrayed by those he came to save, he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he said, friends, this is my body which has been broken for you. And whenever you eat it, I want you to remember me. And then in the same way, after supper, he held up the cup 
And he took it and he said, this cup is the new covenant that comes in my blood. And whenever you drink of it, I want you to do so in affectionate remembrance of me. Anyone who is open to this work of God in in your life is invited to this table. And I want you to know that we want no barriers, so our bread is gluten-free, our wine is non-alcoholic. But when you come, come down our center aisle and come with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is so good and that which comes from God. Approach one of these servers. Listen to what they have to say. Dip the bread into the cup and be thankful. Here at our church, we do not take communion. We receive it because it is a gift. And if there is for any reason, if you cannot make it down our aisle, just wave your hand to Andrea, wherever she might be, and she would be glad to come and serve you. Friends, this is a gift, and it is offered to you. So when you are ready, please come to this table.